What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Aaron Kudnani. The writer discusses his most recent book, What is Anti-Racism? and why it means anti-capitalism. Joining our run in conversation is Rachira Sharma, the writer and journalist whose work has appeared in outlets including Vice and The Guardian. She's also co-host of the Everything is Content podcast. Let's join Rachira Sharma and Arun Kutnani in conversation now. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Arun Kutnani. He's a writer interested in issues such as racial capitalism and Islamophobia. He is the author of books including The Muslims Are Coming and The End of Intolerance which was selected as a New Statesman Book of the Year. His most recent book, What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism, is what we'll be discussing today. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, how effective do you think modern approaches to racism are? Uh, well, I think I think the first thing to say is that we have t- we actually have two different traditions of, of anti-racism, right? So when we talk about um, modern approaches to racism, um, there's one that... that tends to get most of the attention, which which is what I call um, uh, a kind of liberal tradition of anti-racism. Uh, and there's another tradition that, that's a little more hidden um, called a radical anti-racist tradition, right? And I, I think that the liberal the liberal tradition, we can kind of get into defining those terms a little more precisely um, in a moment if you want, but the liberal one has kind of run its course. Um, and at this point, I think is, is more harmful than helpful. Um, and most of, you know, most of the stuff, you know, if, like, if, you, if you work in a in a large company or in a university or a government department or something like that. And your, and your experience of anti-racism is diversity initiatives, um, that, that have become familiar to most of us, I think now, um, that is the liberal tradition of anti-racism. And I'm, I'm afraid, I think that's, that's doing, it's doing more harm than good right now. Um, so can you talk about what, um, liberal anti-racism is? And why do you think, you kind of mentioned this in the book, why has that become the dominant definition of anti-racism at the moment? Yeah, so so the, the, the best way I think to, to sort of capture what liberal anti-racism is about is just, is just to think historically for a moment. And um, actually, the word racism as a, as a kind of word that's regularly used in the English language really only goes back to the 1930s when we were trying to make sense of Nazism um, and understand something called racism as central to it. And um, the the sort of theory that emerged around that time, and you know, if you want to have some citations here, it'd be people like Magnus Hirschfeld, um, the, the German Jewish um, 
uh, sexologist and uh, queer theorist, uh, Ruth Benedict, the American anthropologist, Franz Boas, the American anthropologist, you know, people like this were, were thinking about this, this idea of racism in a new way at that time. And what they came up with was essentially this theory that feels very familiar to us now, um, but was new at the time, which was that um, in, a, in a country like Germany in the 1930s, you had large numbers of people um, who had been taught um, in schools um, that there was a racial hierarchy in the world, um, that there was maybe four races and the number always varies. You know, is it three races? Is it four races? Is it seven races? Because these are unstable concepts. And and that there was a hierarchy among those races with whites at the top and so on, right? And um, and that this was the, the sort of scientific orthodoxy of of the 19th century, but by the 1930s had been scientifically discredited. So to hold on to those beliefs after that point was irrational, right? So the argument is, is that racism is essentially a matter of irrationally held beliefs. And so the the so what is anti-racism then? The anti-racism then looks like um, credentialed elites, scientists, academics, um, uh, uh, what we might call opinion leaders today, um, uh, have a responsibility to to persuade the masses that their that their prejudices and attitudes and beliefs with regard to race are, are now irrational and should be um, uh, amended, right? And and that 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 is what the problem of racism is, right? And so the solution is this kind of top down approach where and it's an educational approach, right? It's it's about saying you you need to be educated about something that you you currently don't fully understand, right? Um, and so there's a straight line, I think, from that moment in the 1930s of people explaining how Nazism comes to power right through to um, the present day with, you know, diversity training, um, you know, various kind of educational initiatives that are designed to, like, make us understand their unconscious biases and get rid of these irrationalities that, that, that are present in our mind. Um, you know, the 4.3 billion industry around around um, diversity training in the United States. I think all derives from that. So does the idea that if we, you know, if we just get our um representation right in Hollywood movies, then that has this kind of educational effect on the on the general public um to to get rid of their racial attitudes um in that way. Right. And so I think I think all of this in the end actually boils down to um this this new way of thinking about race that comes out of the 1930s, which, you know, for I mean so for for a good few decades, that while that was not everything that we ought to have been doing in terms of anti-racism, that was going to be a part of it, right? Because of course, if you know someone else who has racial attitudes, uh, racial prejudices, racial beliefs, yes, please do try and engage with them and and um, persuade them that those beliefs are irrational to hold, right? Absolutely, let's do that. Um, and um, you know the uh, the problem is is that I think at this point. Um, by putting all our emphasis on on that part of it, um, we don't see the, the the broader structures that actually can exist without the majority of people in a society actually holding racial beliefs unconsciously or, or consciously, right? Like those structures have an independent existence um, that we need to focus on, and that this way of thinking about anti-racism doesn't allow us to to grapple with, um, and. Um, you know the the Sivanandan, the the the, the anti-racist thinker, um, if, uh, you know, originally Tamil Sri Lankan, but but spent most of his working life in Britain. Um, he used to talk about how getting getting a white person to be able to interact in a normal way with with human beings who aren't white 
is obviously something we want to try and achieve, right? Get rid of those prejudices, get rid of those, those kind of patronizing attitudes, whatever else it is. But to get to that point is, you know, he would say that's potty training, you know, like, well done. You've, you've got to the point where you're able to function like a grown up human being, welcome to humanity. Um, now let's get on with, with dealing with the real bigger problem, which is the structures, right. That, that are to do with things like policing, things like borders, things like military violence, um, things like mass incarceration, things like the vast economic disparities, both within countries like Britain and the United States and between those countries and, um, and the global South, right. Now that's really where, where, you know, the real, um, violence of racism starts to hit people. That's where, you know, when you're talking about removing every year a million Mexicans from the United States and trying to remove them back to Mexico. That's mass violence that isn't even about um, individual prejudices and unconscious biases. Like we can get we can get the the immigration officer in the United States um, to do all the all the uh, you know diversity awareness unconscious bias training we want that deportation officer is still going to be deporting that Mexican. They might do it a little more politely. That's wonderful. But they're still going to be basically deporting that person. And that deportation is inherently a violent process, right? And that's going to be happening to a million people every year anyway, irrespective of the training we give to those officers. Um, why? Because what drives that deportation is not anyone's unconscious bias, even on a mass level. What drives it is the need in the world to maintain a racial division of labor uh, between the United States and Mexico. So that you know, corporations can can cross that border uh, from El Paso to Juarez, essentially the same conurbation, but divided by a border, cross over there and find workers who can be made to work in the same work for, for a fifth of the wage that they have to pay on the US side of the border, right? And so that super exploitation is enabled by the border and the border is inherently a, has racial meanings uh, uh, because of because it is understood to divide two different racial groups, right? The, the U.S. And, and Mexico. So um, that's what we need to grapple with if we're gonna if we're gonna transform um, uh, these these kind of deeper structures in in a country like the United States. And of course, the same applies to the U.K. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. You kind of touch on capitalism's role in it, but I was wondering, can you tell me how neoliberalism fits into this? Yeah, so so we have, I think especially nowadays, liberals and the left um, has this sort of standard story of of what we've ended up calling neoliberalism, right? And and so um, I think most 
you know, most people are aware of this, this kind of standard story. Um, and it goes, you know, it goes something like this. Um, uh, at some point after, after World War II, a group of um, intellectuals um, gathered together in a place called Mont Montpellerin in, in Switzerland, um, you know, talking about Friedrich Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman and, and, and others. And, and they basically, these were thinkers who believed in um, a free market idea of, of how to run an economy, how to run society. And, and they were despairing because they looked around, the, uh, particularly in, in Europe and the United States, and, and saw um, uh, you know, a, 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 society, a political situation in which there was growing um, things like the National Health Service in Britain, um, public housing, you know, maybe a third of British people lived in public housing, um, uh, you know, the creation of a kind of cradle to grave system of welfare benefits and so on, um, high taxation attempts in a, you know, attempting to redistribute wealth from, from rich to poor and so on. And this was the political situation and they, they wanted to find a way to do, to overturn that. And so they start networking, they start, you know, putting out pamphlets and so on, um, developing alternative, set of ideas that is a reassertion and celebration of the of the market as the best way to organize the distribution of resources in societies. Um, they don't get anywhere until the 1970s when there's a kind of crisis in the in the kind of welfare state societies of, of Europe and the United States. Uh, main, I mean, mainly here we're talking about Britain and the United States, this story. And, um, and so they take advantage of this crisis and from the 1970s start to gain political power for their ideas. And then by the 80s, you get Thatcher and Reagan who, you know, kind of tear to shreds the sort of welfare system that we had and uh, create this kind of new, highly individualized, competitive kind of society um, uh, based on the ideas of free markets. And and since then, we're all screwed and, and we're all, you know, living with extreme inequalities and and um, pitted against each other to compete for, for everything, right? Um, and that, you know, I think that's a really powerful story. Like, I associate it with writers like David Harvey in his book on, on neoliberalism. You know, Naomi Klein, The Shock Doctrine, has a version of this story. So, you know, and it's become the kind of everyday common sense for the left. And, it, and I think it underpins a lot of what people were thinking about in relation to the sort of movement around Jeremy Corbyn and, and Bernie Sanders in the US. Now, that's a, that's a, you know, that story captures a large part of what, of the truth of, of that history. Um, but it misses out something that I think is important, which is that the impetus um, for the neoliberal transformation was as much about um, the um, movements in the global south for, for redistributions of wealth across the world um, and things like the Black Freedom Movement in the United States, which was also in part about a, a demand for redistributions of wealth. It was as much a response to those kind of movements as it was a response to um, the the kind of growing power of like organized labor within a country like Britain, um, which is how the story is normally told, right? The crisis of the 1970s is normally presented as um, a crisis that's brought about by the growing assertions of organized labor, um, uh, uh, industrial workers within within Britain. And so, so what happens when we bring in this, this other side to the neoliberal story, the story of the neoliberal transformation, um, uh, is I think... Um, that it it forces us to um, understand that the questions of race and colonialism have always been central to the neoliberal project in a way that is is often downplayed, right? And it's, if once we understand that, we can understand how um, uh, we're in the world we're in today. 
which is a neoliberal world and continues to be a neoliberal world, but is also a world of neocolonialism and also a world of um, proliferating racisms, right? Structural, um, as well as as political movements that have race as central to them, right? Um, if you only if you only have the standard story of neoliberalism, it's really hard to explain how racism has become um, so strong and and how it's and how it's been so persistent because on the standard story of neoliberalism you know moving to this world of individualism and markets should have helped us get rid of racism right i mean that's what someone like milton friedman would have said markets are colorblind right and so we've and so if we're moving to that kind of society of of colorblind markets we should be getting rid of racism but in fact we don't right so i, I think we need this other part of the neoliberal story to understand that um and um you know the, the the uh the the neoliberal thinker Lionel Robbins, who is one of the kind of important um core thinkers here for the project, has this line where he says, um, the mines for the miners and Papua for the Papuans are analytically similar slogans, right? So he's drawing attention to the fact that like org- organized labor and um uh kind of third world liberation movements are basically the same threat to to the idea of free markets, right? What happens through the if you you know I spent a lot of time um, looking through the the kind of intellectual archive of neoliberal thought, uh, you know, reading all the stuff that Hayek wrote and Friedman and and a few of the others, and the thing that comes across when you do that, um, uh, I think if you if you really kind of look for this stuff, it's there um, staring you in the face, is that all of these thinkers were, were very focused on questions of, of colonialism and what happens after the European empires have been defeated, right? In the From the kind of 1940s to the 1970s, that's the big transformation that's happening in the world. Because to them, those European empires, while they were um, illiberal, they understand that they were illiberal in certain ways, they also understand that they kind of made a boundary um, that, that, that set limits on what kinds of demands for social justice could be mobilized from colonized peoples, right? So if you're, you know, if you're um, a, um, uh, you know, a member of the industrial working class in Britain, in the 1940s, you are able to make demands for social justice and you are able to, to uh uh, mobilized politically to get the government to do things like the National Health Service, right? Um, uh, huge achievement, right? Um, but if you're, you know, in another part of the British Empire, say you're in India and you're an industrial worker or a peasant worker or any other kind of worker, you aren't going to be able to mobilize to get the British Empire to provide, um, you know, lifetime free healthcare for you because. If you do that, you're going to get killed, right? Because it's a it's a it's not a de- democratic project over there, right? So so um, and and so from that point of view, the neoliberals had a sort of mixed feeling about empire. On the one hand, they didn't like some of the what they perceived to be the liberalism liberalism of it, but they also liked the fact that it set these d- limits to what could be done in terms of social justice because they don't like social justice; they like markets, which are not social justice, right? And so their project after the end of the European empires is how can we come up with a new way of designing the world in which um, those limits to demands for social justice from around the world can still be upheld, right? 
and and what they do, you know, when they end up creating things like the World Trade Organization, when they end up, um, cap, you know, getting control of institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and when they are able to shape how, um, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department and and um, the U.S. State Department and so on get to shape the world's global system, um, you know, they they do in fact manage to design a world where where those boundaries can be. Um, established again so that it becomes impossible for, you know, I mean, countries like, you know, in the early 70s, there were demands coming from newly independent countries in the global South for there to be some kind of international economic order that would enable reparations and redistribution of wealth and a trading system that would enable um, those countries to be able to lift themselves up out of the history of colonialism to provide something like welfare for their people, right? Um, and those those moves by countries like Tanzania and Jamaica were were blocked by the neoliberals at the international level. They didn't want a trading system that looked like that. They wanted one that that um, uh, seemed to um, fit their their free market model. And so, in that sense, they you know they are involved in a neo-colonial project as well as well as a neoliberal project. One thing I wanted to ask you was towards the end of the book, it feels as if there's kind of a call for marginalized communities to kind of come together, not to, you know, put a hierarchy of oppression next to each other. And I was wondering, firstly, do you think that liberal racism has encouraged us to further isolate, you know, from different groups? Well, I think um, one of the consequences of neoliberalism is that, that it individualizes us, right? Uh, it, it, it encourages us to think of ourselves as islands, um, and the, our, the meaning of our lives is is to compete with others in a market to maximize our personal gain and utility and happiness, um, uh, and that that's essentially a competitive exercise, right? And so you see this even in the way that you know the social media economy is organized, right? Where it's essentially a competition for attention between millions of individuals, right? Um, and and so then when you when you then um, because because we also live in a in a you know one of the other things that neoliberalism does is it it makes us um feel pain right it harms us in all kinds of ways right because we're not able to really live happy lives and and um fulfilling lives based on on that kind of uh, organization of the world so we feel pain right and um and what um, and, and what neoliberalism encourages us to do with our pain, because it has this individualizing effect, is, is to say, well, look at the uniqueness of my pain, right? Look at the uniqueness of my pain. And, and only if my individual pain is recognized, um, can, um, can I be, can I feel fully human again, right? Yeah. Um, now, that's a, that's a delusion because, you know, as James Baldwin says, your individual pain is trivial unless it enables you to connect to the pain of others, right? But that's that's the thing that we we find so hard to do. Um, and if we're going to deal with, you know, if we're going to deal with the, the sources of those pains that we all feel in different ways, right? Um, then we're going to have to find ways to come together in collectives because only like collective organized action is able to dismantle structures. We can we can like. Do as individuals, what we can do is tackle someone else's individual prejudice. Like I can talk to a white person and and maybe hopefully get them to to look at the world a different way for that one individual, 
right? Maybe I'm going to have like some kind of anti-racist workshop and we'll do 10 at a time. We're never going to get to the millions, right? That way. And we're never going to transform even more importantly, we're never going to transform these, these deeper structures that are rooted ultimately in, in, you know, these, in the whole system of racial capitalism. I can, I can change the minds of, of masses of of people, but those structures will remain. So if we're going to tackle the structures, the way we do that is not through persuasion and education, but through organized collective action in a power struggle against the interests that want to uphold this system, right? Now, once we're on that level, then as you as you've highlighted, the question is, how do we move beyond me as an individual or me thinking that my particular identity is the most important thing. And that identity connects me to this kind of small group of other people with this shared identity. And anything beyond that is somehow a dilution of the authenticity of, of that identity uh, and, and has to be understood in terms of these kind of temporary, um, uh, but probably fraught alliances with others, right? So so yeah, I don't think, I don't think that, you know, in order to get that collective action that we need, it's going to be a matter of, you know, the old slogan of um, black and white unite and fight. Like everyone can just come together in a kind of shared class struggle that erases any of those differences. Like that's never, never worked and it's never going to work. And the reason it never works is because actually differently racialized groups have very different material relationships to these structures of capitalism, right? And so the experience is going to look different. And so therefore it's not an automatic unity. It's a unity that needs to be built um, and, and that, requires political organizing and so on right but but unless we can do um a better job of bringing larger collectives together we're never going to be able to take on these structures that makes sense one thing that was absolutely fascinated by in your book is this idea that's promoted the english liberal values as this very um vulnerable thing to immigration and this idea that, you know, it's almost on a tipping scale. And, you know, if we have excess immigration from especially non-white countries, English liberal values are at threat. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain how that idea came to prominence and how it's been used, you know, in this argument of immigration. Yeah. So this is, this is really, you know, the idea of British values, like however, however you want to define those, actually, whether you define those in liberal terms or even you know like i think probably in the in the early 90s late 80s there was a lot of a lot of people talking about defining those those british values in more conservative ways um, like norman tebbett and john major would have done um the you know the, the basic argument that that exists politically in britain to to make the case for ever tougher immigration controls which is what we've seen since um, the late 60s, um, you know, the basic argument is um, that is a cultural argument, right? It's not it's not one that um, is is about thinking of racial hierarchy in in a 19th century way. It, um, it's a it's an argument that says, um, you know, Britain is defined by a certain cultural um, value system uh, that is not shared by by people from um, uh, Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, Middle East. And, um, and that if you allow too many people in from those parts of the world, then that, that value system will be weakened. Um, and, um, uh, and, and that is, that is dangerous, right? Um, and that weakens the political stability ultimately of, of, um, the British order, right? Now that argument, which comes from labor politicians, conservative politicians, um, you know, 
day in, day out, and has done for decades, um, uh, goes back to someone called Enoch Powell, right? Who, um, who ends up, you know, ends up being presented retrospectively as, um, you know, someone who was, who was simply, it's simply a story of someone who, who was an individual racially prejudiced politician. Like he didn't like people from, from South Asia and the Caribbean. And so therefore he wanted to keep them out. And that's as simple as that. And he mobilizes, he mobilizes, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, prejudice and hatred in this, in this, um, fanatical way. Uh, and that's, and that's the, the danger he represents. So his story is, is kind of slotted into a, into this same old liberal idea of anti-racism, right? Which is we have a certain number of people in society with these, with these prejudices, whether they're unconscious or conscious and, and a, a charismatic politician can come along and manipulate those prejudices in this way. Um, uh, and that in the end becomes a kind of threat to liberal democracy because, you know, they, they, they kind of push us towards a, um, a kind of authoritarian, if not fascist kind of politics. Right. Well, the problem with that reading of Powell is, um, it misses out that not only was he the, the kind of innovator of this new argument for immigration, um, but also he was, um, Britain's first neoliberal politician. Right, this is the part of Powell that's that's dropped off the the, the kind of standard recounting of his life. Um, so, um, before Thatcher and and before Keith Joseph and before you know these other figures that people tend to associate with the rising kind of political influence of neoliberalism in the nineteen seventies, um, the neoliberal think tanks and the neoliberal kind of intellectuals that were operating in Britain in the nineteen sixties. You know, you look at the archive, they all talk about Enoch Powell as their one man in parliament, right? And so he was already making these kind of arguments of the virtues of a free market society. And why this is important is because um, uh, it helps us to understand where his racism comes in. So his racism is essentially the idea that um, if, if Britain's going to do this neoliberal transformation that he wants to see Britain do, in the 1960s to get us away from the kind of more social democratic kind of welfare system that we had, um, you know, what ends up being the Thatcherite turn. Um, if Britain's going to do that, his argument is um, it's only going to be possible if um, the, the kind of um, collectivist value system that Britain has among its working class is is broken down, right? So for him, it, like culture is central to the neoliberal project, as it is for all the other neoliberal thinkers, actually, like Hayek and 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 Friedman and so on. All of them see culture as a central question. Um, uh, and in in Powell's case, his argument is that um, in order in order for us to break down this kind of communal collectivist culture that that is a that is never going to be um, compatible with with a free market society um it's going to require um a kind of cultural transformation to be carried out by the government right what what Thatcher ends up talking about as you know um she has this line that she she gives in an interview in the early 80s about um you know it that the, the 
the, the sort of political transformation she's trying to bring about is not just simply about economics, but it's about transformation of the soul, right? And that's what that captures this idea. That it's a cultural transformation um, that we need. So we get to think of ourselves as more competitive individuals. Now, Powell's argument is that's never going to be possible if you've got a load of people in Britain from Pakistan and India and the Caribbean, because they're really communal kind of people. They're not individualist, right? They are. Their values are you know, extended family, like looking out for the broader community. Oh, and and what's more, it, those are those cultural values from those other parts of the world are so deeply fixed and rooted that you're never going to be able to change them. They're fixed, right? So for him, culture is kind of functioning like a kind of race-like thing here because it's so deep, it's not going to change. It's like something that determines all your behavior um, in a way that looks very much like race, right? Um, and which, which is why for him, actually race and culture are kind of interchangeable, right. As concepts. Um, now, um, uh, so, so we need to repatriate, he would say the million or so people of color in Britain, you know, in 1968, because they are the biggest barrier to the, the more individualized society that he wants to create. Right. Because a, um, a million people with those, fixed values that support communalism are going to influence their neighbors, the white working class neighbors that they live with to also be more communal. So we're never going to be able to get, get our cultural transformation going, right? That's essentially his argument, right? And so um, it's, it's another great illustration of how the question of neoliberalism, the question of racism get entangled together in this way, right? And also, you know, it points to this, which is, um, so if you if you think of Powell as just the kind of inheritor of an older kind of Victorian form of racism derived from the British Empire period, and he's like this kind of um, uh, legacy of the past, this kind of hangover of the past, right? It doesn't explain why the political project that he wants to wants to um, initiate and that he successfully gets going in Britain, which is the idea of of um, you know ever tighter immigration controls you know like before before the mid 60s it was it was possible for you to to move from the caribbean or from south asia to britain uh without having you know like you would you would you had the right to do that right and um, there were no restrictions on you moving in that way um because it was understood that you there that this was all part of the british empire or former empire and as you know like when my father was born in in um in india uh he was made a subject of the british empire he'd never you know like been to britain when he was born obviously like for the first kind of 30 years of his life he'd never been to britain he had no idea what britain was about um he had never met someone from britain but he was a subject of the british empire and therefore could freely move to britain um uh, uh before the mid 1960s right um and and that was the understanding now we go from that system to a system of immigration controls tightening year in, year out, Labour and Conservative legislating that right through to the present day, right? Where, um, where you know, we are um, uh, in the, you know, in the midst of, of making it even more likely that we have a death by policy in the English Channel um, uh, by, by, you know, using every means possible to try and prevent people from crossing into this country, right? Um, now, so that's a new political project, right? That goes hand in hand with the emergence of neoliberalism, right? Immigration, tighter immigration controls are a, are an aspect of the growing political um, influence of neoliberal intellectuals, right? 
Um, so, so what what we see with that whole infrastructure of racist violence that is what border controls are is um, something that is is not like the legacy of the past of the British Empire of some sort of Victorian thing that's been handed down. Um, that survives into the neoliberal era. It is a, a product of the neoliberal era itself. And Powell tells us why that is. Before I let you go, can I ask, what are your thoughts on the Home Secretary, Swimila Bravman's recent comments about um, multiculturalism has failed? Yeah, well, it, you know, so the idea of multiculturalism has failed is an old idea, right? It, now, at this point, right? It's... Um, uh, it, it was it was a, a notion that was first actually put about by... Um, you know, by politicians in the in the late nineties, actually um, uh, across Europe, um, uh, and uh, and then it was it was you know in the sort of um, years of the war on terror, it was it was repeatedly invoked. Um, you know, David Cameron gave his famous speech um, about the, the uh, failure of multiculturalism in in what was it? You know, two thousand and nine or ten or something like that, and um, and and. You know, during the Blair years and, and Gordon Brown years, every every Home Secretary gave that speech, right? And so, Suella Breverman is is um, you know utterly unoriginal in this in this uh, formulation. Um, uh, the the problem with the argument is um, that that multiculturalism has multiple meanings, right? So, if if by multiculturalism you mean um, is it how's it going um in in say a city like london of um uh you know millions of millions of people from different ethnic backgrounds living relatively close to each other um in different neighborhoods um uh what's it like when they interact over the garden fence or on the street corner or in the shops or at the school i mean the reality is is that is that at this point um uh there is a sort of conviviality to that 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 people have fought for. Like it didn't just kind of spontaneously happen out of some kind of um, wonders of the British, you know, kind of political and cultural history. It was something that that people like us had to fight for, often quite violently, right? Um, uh, you know, like when you talk to older older people involved in anti-racist politics, um, you know, it's clear that um, uh, they had to confront. Um, organized racism in their in their neighborhoods right across london um in order to in order to for us as as their children and grandchildren to get to the point where where that's less of an issue um uh, than it was right um and so uh, having had those struggles a kind of conviviality becomes possible right and that's again now, now we're talking on the level of interpersonal relationships right that stuff about individual prejudices the potty training, yeah. Most of London's done its potty training now, right? We've got to that point where where we can kind of deal with each other as ordinary human beings. Um, but that doesn't do anything about the structural problems, right? The fact that um, you're more likely to be killed by the police if you're black. The fact that you're more likely to be deported um, to a place you've never been if you're black or brown. The fact that um, you know that all the all the kind of structural outcomes like um, economic inequality. Um, health outcomes, uh, housing conditions, and so on are all racially structured, right? Um, so, so that's what the picture looks like in the in the real world. Then there's the question of of you know something like what might be called a multicultural policy program, right? Um, 
Uh, and normally when people give that speech about multiculturalism failing, they're talking about the multicultural policy program, which is essentially this idea that, um, you know, that, that goes, that run, in Britain runs through the period really after the early 80s. So in the early 80s, we had, you know, uprising insurrections across Britain um, coming out of um, black and South Asian communities, but also involving white people in those areas, um, uh, a, a set of rebellions against the police, right? Um, and um, in that moment, um, one of the there's various responses that came from the authorities to that kind of crisis. And one was, um, uh, we need some kind of multicultural policy program, right? The, the uh, Home Secretary at the time talked about, um, we need to give um, minorities a cultural outlet of some sort to divide to, to kind of divert them from the the um political mobilizations that are happening on the streets right so suddenly um you know you you get uh channel 4 programming with with you know a whole strand for ethnic minorities and suddenly the news is being read by some by a black woman for the first time and suddenly um the arts council has a new strand of funding for um, for ethnic minority arts, as it would have been called at the time, right? And so, you know, there there was an understanding that you, in order to, in order to bring um, uh, a kind of integration process into into play for for, p for communities that were seen as as excluded, um, one of the ways to to bring them in was to to create these um, uh, kind of institutional settings where there there could be some kind of cultural recognition, right? Um, and and then. And that and that's a very neoliberal response, right? Like the idea that, um, uh, you know, that and essentially the word we use now to describe that is diversity, yep. right? And and um, and diversity policy, and that was a neoliberal response, right? Um, so so it um, it has so we now have in the United States and the UK a conservative politics that again is nothing. This is not actually original, right? This is this is decades old, but it's a conservative politics that is organised around the idea of um, opposing that kind of response, that neoliberal response to um, uh, uh, anti-racist insurrection, right? And um, uh, you know the, all the woke stuff is that's what that essentially is, right? Um, so there is a, there is a sort of split in, in the kind of ruling elites of, of countries like Britain and the United States There's a liberal wing that thinks that that kind of diversity policy is the best way to deal with, um, the, the kind of, um, threat of insurrection, this kind of thing that in the United States we saw in 2020, where, you know, 15 million people were on the streets, um, uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests, like for neoliberals, the best way to deal with that is to, is to do diversity politics, right? Which is not what the people on the streets were demanding. They were, they, they weren't saying, um, we'd like to, to have better diversity training in, in, you know, university departments. They were saying, we want to defund the police and abolish the immigration and customs enforcement, right? So, so it's it's not what the what the demand was from the streets, but what the response was in liberal in neoliberal institutions was let's do more diversity training, let's do let's do diversification of our of our management, um, and so on. Let's do better representation in Hollywood movies, right? Um, you had um, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, you know, the most powerful financial institution in the world, talking about systemic racism, right? So, an amazing moment because. 
you know, that phrase, systemic racism, is a phrase that you would also find maybe in someone like Franz Fanon, you know, what a revolutionary who believes in the armed struggle to overthrow colonialism. Um, they're both using the same term to describe the problem here. Well, they don't mean anything like the same thing by it, right? And what Larry Fink is talking about is like, let's have more diversity training in his in his corporation, right? Now, there's a there's a conservative wing of the of the ruling elite that says no, that's not the best way to deal with these insurrections. The best way is actually none of that diversity. That diversity just makes the problem worse. We don't want all this diversity training. We want to go back to a certain idea that that there's there's one culture and and people outside of that culture are going to have to either be assimilated into our culture. Right again, it's that neo- they're also neoliberals, right? Their idea is that that culture is all about individualism, competitiveness, and so on. Right, that you have to assimilate into that culture, or we are, we're going to use violence to to force you to behave according to those cultural values, even if you don't assimilate into them. Right, so there's a division there on on the, on the part of the ruling elite. But from from our point of view, as as people who are, if we're serious about trying to dismantle structural racism, then neither of those two camps are ones that. Are going to be helpful to us, um, and um, and we have to be clear that there is a different anti-racist tradition from the one that the diversity training people are advocating. Uh, not least because that tradition of the liberal tradition of anti-racism is indeed um, patronizing and preachy and elitist. So the conservative criticisms of it have some val- validity to them. There's a kernel of truth to it, right? Because it does have this idea that it's about elites um, uh, educating regular people that they are being irrational in their beliefs, right? Whereas those of us in the radical anti-racist tradition, we, you know, we we are gonna, yeah, we despair at, at the ways that historically white workers have not been able to ally with working people in the rest of the world, right? We despair at that, but we understand that the real problem is not them. The real irrationality is at the top of the system, not regular people. The real irrationality is is the way that our world is organized according to this system of racial capitalism, which um, creates wealth for a tiny few and, and makes the rest of us suffer, right? In different ways, suffer in different ways. But nevertheless, we're also suffering. Um, and, you know, it, um, whoever, whatever kind of um, skin color we have as working people, right? So, um, so we need to make that distinction um, and um, and and we need to do this more radical anti-race tradition that is about collective action, not about um, kind of talking down to people that we think haven't understood the rational way to be. Thank you so much for your time, Aaron. This was an absolutely fascinating chat. The book again is What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism? And it's available from your local bookshop. I'm Rachira Sharma and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. 
The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.